0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we preview the Astros White Sox ALDS. Oh, we're excited for that. We also have a quick look at the Patriots versus Patriots South. Oh, I mean, Patriots versus Texans matchup and we bask in the early undefeated Rockets. Wink, wink. Yeah, they're they're undefeated. It's early. Uh, before we fire it up, a reminder that we're brought to you by BetUS.com, America's favorite sports book. Not only is BetUS.com the place to bet on all your favorite sports, but in just a few minutes, we'll remind you about our exclusive discount. It's a way to save money, support our show, and maybe help you listeners make a little holiday spending money. How about that? more on that in a bit but let's get rolling with my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow h-town sports junkie and veteran journalist steven kerr and our special guest for this one greg lucas not only an astros broadcaster for years but spent over 45 years in the business calling baseball and other sports all that stuff you know greg by this point but great to catch up with you greg you getting tired of this annual October Astros thing yet, Greg?
1: <laughs> no, I tell you what, fans better not be getting tired of it because uh this is uh, unique, obviously, early 60s they had a run, never got uh, to the World Series or well, I got there once in 2005, but uh, the uh, this is really this is a much better team and it has been a much better team and hopefully they can stay a much better team and they'll be a contender to win the big one. Whether they win it or not, they'll be a contender to win the big one as long as they can stay as good as they are now.
0: You know, Greg, I was wondering if, if it was frustrating at all for you when you did the Astros broadcast that after covering the team all year, you then had to hand it over to the national guys for the playoffs.
1: Well, it was, except in my case, I, I think it was more frustrating for Bill Brown and Jim Deshays because uh, they'd been they'd been in the booth all year and they could do nothing. I still actually did quite a bit during the 2005 World Series. I did pre- and post-game shows from the the site in both Chicago and and Houston that were extended. We were the only uh, television station in Houston that was allowed to do it, and the reason we were allowed is at the time the network was owned by Fox. Fox owned the television rights for the national telecast, and so that allowed us, as the Fox Sports Net operation to actually be in the clubhouses or right outside the clubhouses and set up live before and after games and that was that was unique. So I was there for all of them and I was in a working capacity, just nothing to do with the actual game.
2: Greg, it's it's amazing how much the media has changed over the years. You know, we you have more channels of course that, that cover this sort of thing. But I, I was kind of in the same view as Robert. It's like, you know, you guys go through the whole season and you're with the team and you you do the games and then in the postseason, it's it's almost like you're more in the background. But the, the fact is, y- you still have things to do, and you still kind of get caught up in all of the craziness, huh?
1: We did. As I said, I, Brownie and J.D. didn't because they, they were employees of the club. I was an employee right. of Fox. So consequently, when we added pre- and post-game shows, I was the guy that did them. But that has not always been the case. I know in Chicago with the Cubs, when uh, they went to the World Series a few years ago, their lead TV guy— uh actually would joined the radio crew was part of the actual i think he may have done the middle three innings on radio and uh but that was not done with the astros and so it was it was tough for jd and brownie and it's tough for the guys they've got now because they're they're in the same boat they have nothing to do basically
2: how much have you looked at the white Sox this year of course the astros played seven games against them and one five out of seven, but I, I mean, how much do you throw in those kind of things? You know, because once the playoffs start, we we've already seen, you know, with the Yankees Red Sox thing, we've already seen. You know, anything can happen in the playoffs. So uh, all these stats that you know, look so great for the Astros against the White Sox may not necessarily be the case once they get on the field for the playoffs.
1: No, it's it's a different deal, although I will say this. Uh, I, they do match up well in the Astros' favor. Overall, during the season, the White Sox actually had slightly better numbers on the pitching staff than the Astros, but not in their head-to-head competition. In those seven games, the Astros were uh, clearly dominant in the the pitching because they had, uh, I think they had, oh, one game or something that uh, where they actually were Clobbered. That was a ten to one back on July seventeenth. But after that, uh, Houston scored seven runs and and eight runs and seven runs and and ten runs, and even won a a two to one pitching duel in one of them. And the White Sox, I think, scored four or less runs in five of those seven games. So the key to me will be how well the Astros pitching can come close to what it did then, because uh, the White Sox pitching, I think, will be pretty solid and better probably than it was in that those series against the Astros.
2: We talk a lot about home field advantage in the playoffs, maybe sometimes a little too much. But, I mean, in this case, don't you think it's a good thing that the Astros got it? Because they they actually did sweep the White Sox at Minute Maid Park in that four-game series that they had earlier in the season.
1: Well, there are two things that look good in this series. Uh, again, if you don't play the deal about throw everything out because it's the playoffs, but if you don't, the White Sox were only a 500 team on the road. 41 right. and 41. That's all. The Astros were uh, better than that on the road, uh, obviously. They were plus 500. Uh, maybe not quite as strong at home as the White Sox were. Uh, and, uh, of course, when the Astros did have to play in Chicago, then they did lose two out of three, although one of them was a 10-1 to game. The other was, were 7-1 to and, and Four to nothing. So the White Sox pretty much dominated the series there, uh, with the Astros winning just the third game of that set. So home field should be an advantage for the Astros. Uh, it hasn't always been, but it should be.
0: Guys, the best side story of this series: Dusty Baker versus Tony Larusa. This is like the movie Cocoon. Maybe they've both been rejuvenated by aliens or something like that. But get this: uh, between Baker and Larusa. You've got 149 years age-wise. I think we all know they're they're older, but 60 years as baseball skippers, seven manager of the year awards. But the thing that I, I just don't think anybody, everybody remembers—they might forget that they briefly played together with the Braves in the 70s, and Larusa managed Dusty with the A's in the 80s. Dusty actually recommended Larusa take a flyer on Dave Stewart, which eventually led to Larusa's first championship over the Giants, where Dusty. Was the hitting coach, and in 2002, Dusty's Giants lost to Larusa's Cards in the NLCS. So over the next decade, Larusa's Cardinals got the best of Dusty's Cubs and Reds quite a bit. And and over the time period over the last 35 years, uh, this is not a good omen, uh, Greg, when you think about it, because it looks like Larusa got a, got the best of Dusty a lot.
1: He did, but I'm, I'm telling you, that's that's the difference. Let's talk about just this series because this Astro lineup is definitely better than the White Sox lineup. And uh, as managers will say, your players really make the difference. And in this case, the defining difference will no doubt be with the pitching and how they perform in the actual game, because. The Astros uh, should be able to outperform them offensively, but that also depends a lot on how the White Sox pitching is going in a particular game. The other thing that's changed with both of those managers is when they started out, we weren't in any of this analytics, uh, algorithm stuff, and they are actually really, and they'll probably tell you this in a private conversation, they're actually doing a lot less managing of their own than they ever did back in those days when they were playing each other because they're being dictated by what stat sheets show them to make uh, certain decisions. And so uh, it's a whole different thing for both of these guys from what it was when they started out in the game.
0: You got to think, Greg, that they're, they're going to be chomping at the bit on the sidelines because it's just, you know, these guys are used to going out with the quick hook, especially in the playoffs. Larusa, you know, known for it, kind of invented that. And and now they've got the three hitter limit, so Larusa and Baker they're going to be maybe a little frustrated uh, over in the dugouts.
1: Well, it looks to me like the quick hook is already in the postseason because I thought there were a couple of quick hooks in the Red Sox Yankee game. Now, yeah, as far as Cole was concerned, he, he was not totally healthy, and they they didn't like what they saw. But I thought the Red Sox made a quick hook following a opposite field foul pole home run to right field that would have been a foul ball in 29 parks in baseball, and then an infield hit they take out a pitcher, their starter, who had only thrown 70 pitches. That, to me, was a quick hook. And then, of course, when Stanton had hit a ball off the wall, the first guy at the reliever faced, it looked like it was a bad move. Turned out, worked out okay for the Red Sox. But I think you're going to see a lot of quick hooks in the postseason. We have seen that in the last few years.
0: Stephen, were you teared up a little bit when the Yankees lost last night? I mean, how bad did you cry at the end of the game?
2: Oh, I yeah, I was tearing up, Robert, with joy, because that means the Astros don't have <laughs> to face him. Now, look, the, the Astros and Red Sox have had some pretty interesting series. Of course, they were the ones who kept the Astros from repeating as World Series champions. But yeah, I, I had some tears in my eyes, Robert, but... Not quite for the reasons you thought.
1: (laughs) I have a statistic for you guys. I'm going to ask you a question. How many more home – you know, the Yankees are supposed to be these big, grizzled power guys and all that stuff. How many more home runs did the uh, Yankees hit than the Astros?
2: Oh, boy. Hmm. That's a good question. The answer – This season, I see. Amaze you.
1: One. One more home run, and the Astros hit 221 home runs. That's kind of been buried, hasn't it? The Astros hit 221 home runs. The Yankees hit 222. Big difference was the Yankees' team batting average was in, the, I think, the 230s, and the Astros were uh, best in baseball at a modest 267, 268, which in, in past years wouldn't have been... It might have been in the top five, but it certainly wouldn't have been best. So things have changed so much in baseball that uh, I think the Major League Baseball overall batting average this year was .244. When you take every player that ever stepped to the plate, and that's that's atrocious. But the fact is the Yankees uh, had a a very low batting average and uh, actually only hit one more home run than the Astros, even though everybody talks about these big, bad Yankees. Uh, Maybe they weren't as big and bad as uh, people feared, even though they did win 92 games.
2: You know, getting back to the uh, pitching and the quick hook, Greg, I I was actually going to ask you one of my biggest concerns of the Astros this season is the fact that the starters just can't seem to go very deep. I mean, how much of an issue, though, is that in the postseason when managers are, you know, they're more apt to give the quick hook? I mean, you almost have to pitch a real gym if you're going to go. Seven, may even six innings these days in the postseason.
1: Yeah, I, I, the quick cook is going to be with us, and I, I just I was talking with Robert about this off the air a couple of days ago, and I I think it might work to the Astros, not disadvantage. I won't say advantage, but it might not be as much of a disadvantage. Uh, in the postseason, because as you know, uh, much of the last part of the season, unless somebody had an injury and had to miss some starts, they were going with a six-man rotation. And in the postseason, they're going to go with three main guys and a fourth sometimes, which means you've got at least two guys who have been starters, presumably then uh, better pitchers, available to pitch relief. And so that, uh, that lengthens the bullpen. So uh, it, it could work to the Astros' advantage at times, if assuming that uh, the guys that are being called on to pitch relief that have been starters can adjust to it. It worked pretty well for the Astros in the 2017 World Series, and so hopefully it can do that again.
0: Hey guys, I, I think the, the number that is worth noting here with Lance McCullers starting game one is that in six career games versus the White Sox, 188 batting average against, 562 OPS, uh, you know, it, it's not the same lineup that he's faced, you know, all, all these different times, obviously, but, you know, it, it's good to start off with McCullers and, 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 and know that he's had success against the White
1: Sox. He beat him twice this year. So, yeah, I mean, that's that may be all time, but also just this year he's beaten them twice. Hey, McCullers is the best pitcher on the team. His biggest problem is the problem that many of them have, going past five or six innings because they throw so many pitches. Not all of that's their fault. In McCullers' case, a lot of it is because his stuff is so good, there are a lot of balls fouled off, and that adds to the pitch count. But McCullers... Is a, So he's not throwing balls five feet off the plate or three feet off the plate, you know, non-competitive pitches. He's usually right around it. Uh, so uh, the key there will be to uh, when he doesn't get a strikeout, he can get out guys early and make them swing the bat. And that's that's my biggest thing with the Astros, especially some of their pitchers. You've got to be around the plate. I mean close. Don't throw any non-competitive pitches like uh, like uh, Cole did a few in the game on the Tuesday night, that the hitters can give up on them early. Make them have to be really concentrated on every pitch and throw strikes so that they can't they can't work counts on you. Yankees couldn't work any counts on the Red Sox pitchers last night. And that's part of their game. And uh, that's the key. And hopefully uh, McCullers can follow that plan.
2: One of the biggest things that's surprising me, well, uh, the stat that surprises me, Greg, when we talk about the pitching and just how inconsistent it's been for the Astros – they're actually second in the AL in ERA among starting pitchers behind the White Sox. That that's kind of an interesting stat that you've got, you know, it it's 3.60 to 3.57. So, I mean, the Astros have some good quality starts. It's just you never know from game to game. It seems what, who's going to show up where.
1: We've got to be a little cautious about that number for the Astros simply because of what we were talking about before. Their earned run average is low, but their total innings pitched on average is not that high. So consequently, right. they're getting them out of there basically uh, before they get in too much trouble. Rarely do you see an Astro starter give up uh, more than two runs but he may only go five innings. Well, that's going to make his earned run average pretty good, but it's not really giving him the innings that you would like to see. And so consequently uh, that can keep the earned run average a little bit lower. And hopefully that uh, they can just, uh, if not, if not this postseason, where, it probably won't happen because managers are really quick with hooks in the postseason. But certainly in the future, if guys like Urquidy and Framber Valdez and uh, and young pitchers can figure out a way to get more pitches out of those arms before they get to that uh, that danger point of 100 pitches, then the Astros will be much much stronger. But that's the key. Their their starting pitching doesn't rarely gets clobbered. They rarely get killed. Sometimes they'll give up a couple runs in the first inning, but then they'll settle down. Uh, the biggest danger is usually about the fourth, as early as the fourth and, and the fifth, where all of a sudden you can see this with your eye. You don't need an, you don't need a stat sheet. You don't need to see what the uh, analytics show. You can see with your eye that they aren't quite the same. The command is a little bit off, and that's the same thing that we used to see in the seventh or eighth innings with the back in the day when guys were trying to go complete games. That's when they were getting tired. And they're getting tired too early. And that's what bothers me. But uh, as far as skills and talent and stuff, Astros have good stuff.
0: Yeah, and in Fromber's three career games for what it's worth, 737 OPS against the White Sox, 238 batting average against Arquiti and Garcia have only faced them once, but their numbers are really good too. I mean, I got some more uh, matchup stuff, but before we get over there, um, we're going to get back to the Astros shortly. But uh, Stephen... Our friends at BetUS.com have the Patriots favored by ten over the Texans. The over under thirty nine and a half. What do you think? Will Casario C- I should say, not Casario and Easterby, are, are they going to have all of the Belichick secrets? You know, or are they going to be able to help us out this time? Around? Yeah, well, you
2: know, you almost had something. How about Caserby? Yeah, you, you, I think
0: you
2: had, that's. Yeah, I think that's what you were trying to say, Robert. You had Caserby, uh, Patriots South, the whole thing. Huh, 10, 10 points, well, I mean, that's probably going to change between now and then. I don't know. This is, again, another difficult game to call, Robert, because the Patriots are not the Patriots of old, or the vintage Patriots that we're used to. But the Texans, they just, you know, they, they seem to be as bad as we thought they were. So, yeah, that that's going to be, and would you say the over-under was 39 and a half?
0: Yes, that's correct.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I, I might have to take that because uh, the Texans' offense certainly... It doesn't look like they're going to score many points, but the Patriots aren't as explosive
0: offensively. So I might take the over under. I'll have to think a little more about the 10. Yeah. You're taking the under on that. I, I say, yeah, take the under, but also uh 10 points. I, I, I say, take the Texans here, Steven, because Look, I mean, the Patriots, they're not what they used to be. The Texans were in bad weather, bad environment. The the Texans are back at home. I got to feel like they're going to correct some of these issues. It's not going to be the total disaster. It it feels like it's a little bit extended there with, you know, a national team against the Texans that looked so bad last week.
2: And I'm afraid to ask this question, but but I think it's a legitimate one. How much worse could it get from the Buffalo game? I, I don't see them playing that way two games in a row, and especially, you know, as we've talked before, Robert, the defense has really is what kept it from being even worse than it was, if that's possible. I don't see the Texans playing that way. I do see them coming out and being competitive. You know, it is the Patriots, whether it's Tom Brady or not. You know, it's it's still good. There, there's a rivalry aspect. And as you said, they are at home, friendlier confines. I think Davis Mills, you know, hopefully he can learn something from this last game. So, yeah, I, I tend to kind of lean in your direction on that.
0: Also, a uh, quick note right before we went on, Stefan Gilmore, the cornerback that won defensive player of the year in twenty nineteen for the Patriots, He was on the pop list, scheduled to come off it soon. Stephen, he was cut sounds like a future Texan he was with the Patriots. he was cut what's going on <laughs> you know
2: i I wish I could say I was surprised, Robert, but I think, as we talked about it before we went on th- there's a very short shelf life with the Patriots unless your name is Tom Brady, but even he didn't finish his whole career with the Patriots. So I guess I'm not too surprised as much as other people, you know, but not only him, how about Jalen Smith of the Cowboys getting cut?
0: So, you know, the Texans, they could be eyeing a couple more great defensive players there. Yeah, that's crazy. A couple of real shockers uh, over the last 24 hours. And um, if you're going to bet on uh, the Texans or the Patriots, what, what, whichever way you want to do it, if you're going to bet on the NFL this season, do it with our sponsors, betus.com, because you might as well use a sports book with integrity and longevity like BetUS. It's not just football, they take action on any sport, have been in the game for three decades. Really, a pioneer in the sports book industry, a diehard customer fan base, easy to use mobile platform. Just log on to betus.com or call 800 792 3887. That's 800 seven nine BetUS. And we can save you money when you sign up. Just use our promo code. HST-125 to redeem 125% signup bonus on your initial $100 deposit. Again, the code HST-125 in the show description every week. And to help our podcast, sign up using that BetUS link on our pinned Twitter post at the top of the page. Or go to our website, HoustonSportsTalk.net, and look for that BetUS icon. Get your online and social sports betting partner with integrity and longevity like I did. BetUS, you bet. You win, you get paid. Well, the uh, leaf blowers, I,
2: I guess those guys are getting paid because they're outside my window right now, if you don't <laughs> hear it, Robert. So anyway, we'll we'll plow through it, though, and uh, let's get back to the Astros as uh, we await with anticipation the series against the White Sox. And, of course, we're visiting with uh, Greg Lucas. You know Greg's name, and certainly that's followed and, and been with the Astros for many, many years. Greg, I want to get to... Let's talk about some of the younger guys that have stepped in this year, you know, mainly in the outfield. You know, we're talking Chaz McCormick, Jake Myers. I mean, those were names, well, especially Jake Myers. When the season began, I mean, it wasn't even on the radar. We we kind of thought Chaz McCormick, you know, might make some splashes, but we weren't sure. You know, coming into a series like this, there's so much unknown in a postseason, you know, where you've got guys like this. What's your assessment of these two And, you know, especially when you're talking about who's going to play center field primarily in this series or throughout the postseason, what is your take on which one of these two guys can maybe step up and and take that position?
1: I think uh, Dusty's going to do it somewhat with matchups based on numbers, because uh, they both have one proclivity that's negative. They both strike out a lot. The Astros had only three players who struck out 100 or more times that played all the time. And that was uh, Alvarez, who whiffed 145 times. He's got to cut down on that. Uh, Maldonado, 127. He's just not a good hitter and uh, Correa 116 times, but they had a lot of at-bats. They had 500-plus uh, at-bats. And McCormick had just uh, 284, and he struck out 104 times. That's uh, that's a pretty high percentage. Uh, but Myers wasn't much better, if any. I'm not statistically sure he was better. He struck out 50 times in 146 at-bats. Both of them showed some power. Uh, Myers is uh, a, a bit better at working counts and seeing a lot of pitches, and he's also probably the better of the two defensively in center field so they'll have to make the decision. But when I say that, McCormick can play center field. So uh, when I say that, I think uh, the manager's going to uh, uh, just match it up based on what, who he thinks may do better against a certain pitcher and what a certain pitcher throws. You know, which of these two guys hits breaking balls better than the other? Which of them, uh, if the pitcher's a big slider and curveball guy? That sort of thing. But one of the other is certainly going to be in the outfield.
0: I disagree that they're equal in, in as far as ability to strike out quickly because it's it seems like McCormick's always down 0 0- I mean, it, it seems like he gets up there and he's down 0-2. Myers at bats, to me, seem a little bit better than McCormick's.
1: They look better because he does work the count. And he obviously looks better at the plate. McCormick's uh, plus is the fact that he will hit the ball either direction. And he has obviously shown some power. And both of them, their batting average were ended up about the same in the 260, 258 era. But uh, obviously Myers is the one that got off to such a great start, and then he just kind of went down the tubes in September at the same time that he was playing a little bit less as they were trying to spread things out. But Myers is is the better of the two defensively, but McCormick might have a little bit stronger arm, but the decision as to how they play is going to be made as a result of a lot of these things.
2: I think if you're looking at one stat that maybe jumps out in, in this series, at least, you know, the White Sox are a right-handed dominant lineup. McCormick appears to maybe be the better option offensively because he's batting 262 with a 742 OPS against right-handers compared to Myers, who has a 233, 676. So maybe that, that's probably the one thing out of you know all the, the numbers I've looked at that may say McCormick has the edge but you're right you know especially late in games when you're talking you know defense can make the difference Myers might be the better option in that situation
1: yeah, I think you may have that right. I, you know, the the difference in batting average is sort of minimal because overall it's 257, and you said what 262. But the one thing I will say about him, he has been pretty consistent. He he was really low when he first came up, and he was hitting a few home runs, but he, his batting average was very low. And then once he got it up to about 250, it's been pretty consistent. Uh, uh, Myers was much streakier. He got red hot early, and then he and then he was like hitting about one-something for about a month. And then the last couple of weeks, he's, he's started to come around again. But I, I do think you're right. I think it depends on uh, who's pitching, fly ball pitcher. And they've always got the defensive replacement available if you need to put somebody in late, and that would be Myers.
0: I got to bring up Carlos Rodon because he just has shut down the Astros over the course of his career, 585 batting average against. He shut him out – in two games this year with the puny 235 OPS against, but Rodon just 28 innings over the final two months of the regular season. The White Sox have already announced he's only going to pitch one game in this series. And it gets interesting, Greg, because it's either Lance Lynn or Lucas Giolito with the game one start. And in 14 games, a 761 OPS against uh, as far as Lance Lynn goes, but the Astros have hit a paltry 6'10 OPS and a 186 batting average with Giolito. So it seems like if there's one guy that scares you, it's Giolito, right?
1: That's exactly right. Uh, Well, again, Rodon's not pitching except one game because he hasn't been well and he probably has had some ailments. And that changes things. It changes things. When uh, when a guy is really on and he's physically strong, he's not the same as when he's not. Only the, the thing that's the same is his name. And that's kind of what we're going back to with Garrett Cole in the uh, Yankees game. His name was Garrett Cole, but he wasn't the same because he he had injuries. He You know, he had the leg injuries. And we see that in baseball all the time. When a guy comes in and pitches on short rest, he's not the same. He may have the same name, but he's not the same. And uh, sometimes you're much better off going with uh, somebody else. And that's so the White Sox, if they decide that he's only going to pitch once, that's why.
2: You know, you talk about the health of the pitchers, Greg, just throughout. I mean, the Astros have certainly had their problems health-wise during the year. But at least at the moment, um, knocking on wood here, they're in pretty good shape, relatively speaking, from a health standpoint. I mean, you, you were talking about, you know, Rodon not being that well. Clayton Kershaw is not even going to pitch in the, in the postseason at all for the Dodgers. You know, Garrett Cole basically... His health knocked the Yankees out. So, I mean, relatively speaking, if there's one positive you can point to, uh, other than Zach Greinke, who is probably going to be available in the bullpen, you know, just because of the question mark with his health and his ineffectiveness, I mean, from a health standpoint, the Astros are in pretty good shape.
1: No, they're in in excellent shape. They don't have anybody, really. Greinke's apparently overcome his neck problem. It's too bad that he had to pitch a third inning because his first two innings when he pitched relief were, were superb. And then, of course, in the third inning, he gave up the home run. But I think that that's another positive for sure. Every you go – third base, shortstop, second base, first base, catcher. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, I want to put in a word for Maldonado because we all know he's the worst hitting catcher in baseball, except <laughs> that he does have some power. But he's not the worst catcher in one major point. He hit 172 this year, but he had an on-base percentage a full 100 points higher than that. If your on-base percentage is 100 points higher than your batting average, you're doing something. For some reason, he's able to draw walks. I cannot understand why or how, because if there's one guy that the opposing pitcher should be making sure they throw strikes to, it's a 172 hitting catcher. But, he gets it done. He's gotten it done, and he's uh, he's on base at a uh, a 272 clip, and that's, uh, that's amazing for the guy, and I also want to put out that he has thrown out 40% of the runners. Uh, I think it's a 40%. Yeah, 40% of the runners that have tried to steal on him, and that's way above the major league average of 23%, so uh, give him some credit, and not even counting what he does working with pitchers. He won't be talked about much, but uh, he's actually still a very important member of this club. If he could only hit about Fifty points higher, it would be even more important.
0: Yeah, it's funny because he he gets out most of the time, but Greg, like you said, he makes the other pitcher work. And in the postseason, you know those those uh, pitches, the the number of times that you have to wind up and throw, it it matters. You you got to wear those guys out. And and in the postseason, we see it more often than ever. Um, if pitchers get a little bit tired, that's when they start making their mistakes.
1: Yeah, he, he drew 47 walks. That's just a little bit under Tucker. And Tucker played uh, played uh, more games.
0: I've got one number for you, Greg, that I think uh, might be a little bit under the radar for most people. The Astros, they were first in fielding percentage in all of baseball. The White Sox, 28th.
1: And that was pointed out in a review I read by, it was White Sox, uh White Sox, and it was pretty fair review because they, they ultimately came through the thing and they gave the Astros a 54% chance of winning the series. And This was a White Sox-based, not White Sox team-based, but White Sox fan-based uh, website that I had seen, and uh, that was one of the things they pointed out. They said the defense uh, definitely goes to the Astros as an advantage, not only with the Fewest errors, but also their range factor at most positions is uh, is better. So um, uh, no, they're aware of that. Uh, White Sox are, and so are their fans. The Astros will not give up too many free base runners by way of errors.
2: Greg, the deeper that you go in the postseason, usually somebody is going to stand out and distinguish themselves. And and sometimes it's the obvious players, but other times, you know, it's like the the Bucky Dents and guys like that. But Who in your mind do you think, especially if the Astros do make a deep run, is there one player that you would say he is going to have a career series? Mine, I have to say, and this may sound like the obvious choice, but I just have this feeling Carlos Correa could be the guy that could really jump up just, I mean, for obvious reasons. He's he's done it before in the postseason. But at the (laughs) same time, this is probably going to be his swan song with the Astros. So I'm thinking Carlos I'm Correa not is my guy.
1: Sure that's gonna be the case. I honestly am not sure. I think Jim Crane is gonna pay him the big big bucks. Ooh. I really do really? Uh, uh, I, I honestly mark do the tape,
2: Robert. Mark Mark. First of gone.
1: all, Yankees <laughs> the Yankees can't do it. They don't have they, they, they they're trying not to go over that tax as much as they can and they could use him. But they won't do it. Not at the rate that supposedly we're talking about three hundred million for ten years. Uh they won't do it. He, they will pay him more per year than Altuve currently is making. And Altuve is making $29 million. So what is $30 million? Guess what? That's exactly the total we're talking about. And a 10-year contract for an everyday player who is only 27 years old makes sense for the Houston Astros. 27. Guess who won the batting title this year? A 37-year-old player. Guess who would be 37 at the end of a 10-year contract? Correa. So I'm just saying that if you don't factor in his age, he's not 31 or 32 like uh, like Springer was. Uh, he's not 32 like A-Rod was actually when he went to the Yankees, and A-Rod a- had 39 home runs at 39, but he had a couple of injury years in there. Pujols was 32 years old when he signed that 10-year deal with the Angels. Well, no. The end of that, those last from 35 on, he's, he's not going to be quite as good. But Correa would only be 37 at the end of a 10-year deal. Baseball statistics have proven over the years that the peak years for all players are between 28 and 32. Well, guess who is going to get a benefit if it's not the Astros? somebody's going to get uh, an MVP player, and there's no reason it shouldn't be the Astros, and no reason the Astros shouldn't pay the money. I, I honestly believe that. I think that the offer they made in the spring was based on the fact that he had not been healthy fully, Uh, on several seasons well he he certainly was fully healthy this year he played 148 games and he could play more except for this days off thing that they instituted uh he was fully available to play uh no if the astros don't make him uh, a 10-year 300 million dollar deal i will be very surprised i honestly will i like your thinking
2: i I wish i had your confidence but yeah it does remain to be seen if he were 30
1: years old no he's 20 You 27. can't let a 27-year-old guy get out of your franchise when he's as good as Correa is.
0: Let, let me just remind you, Greg, the Tigers say they, they're they going to sign a shortstop, and A.J. <laughs> Hinch might want- not
1: going anywhere because of who the manager is. <laughs> it's going to be money, but he's not going to go to Detroit. He will not play for Detroit. He wants to be a winner. He he doesn't he, – no, he's not going to play for Detroit. I will just guarantee you that uh, he will be back. But he's going to get paid – he's going to get paid the huge dollars, and it's going right. to be the Astros that are going to pay it.
2: All right, so with that out of the way, what answer my who, – who do you think, if it's not Carlos Correa, do, is there one person you think is is going to be the Astros hero this postseason?
1: Well, I, I, I got a gut feeling Bregman's going to – finally get hot he was hot for a while and then he kind of tailed off toward the end of the season and I think he is a a scientific enough player that he's going to he's going to be the guy that's going to get hot if I had to name one I don't think anybody's going to be bad necessarily but I do think that the the guy that's going to get hot is going to be Bregman
0: you got a prediction for us Greg in this series what do you think
1: I think four, to be realistic. It would do them well if they won both of the first two games here, but uh, I think four. Uh, White Sox won't beat them in a five-game series. White Sox are good, but they're not as good as the Astros are.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm picking the Astros in four. I, you know, going beyond this series, I'm not quite as confident, but, you know, you got to take it one series at a time, as they all say. Well, so. They're
1: going to have to probably run into Tampa, Tampa Bay again, yeah. and Tampa Bay uh, – you know, got them last year. It's close, but they got them last year. Uh, you know, there, there were some close games, but the off- offense was held in check. And that uh, that can do it. Pitching can beat hitting. That's an old, overused slogan, but it's true.
0: Greg, every week we do a This Week in Astros history segment. And we got, we got a good one, I think, this week. Uh, and, and you might have some memories of this one. What do you got, Stephen? Yeah, I I was going to
2: say, I bet you were at this game, uh, Greg, and you certainly remember it uh, if you weren't. And normally we do several things here, but in the interest of time, we're just going to pick one, and you'll understand why I picked it, because it happened on this very day that we're recording this, October the 6th, 1980. We're talking playoff baseball this time of year, Well, the Astros clinched their first ever postseason berth, that 7-1 win over the Dodgers in a one-game playoff that Saw them advance to the NLCS against the Phillies with Joe Necro, of course, pitching that win, giving up six hits. Art Howe drove in four runs. Greg, what do you remember about that game personally?
1: Mainly the pressure that uh, they put themselves in to have to play it because because they go out to L.A. and, and get, you know, get beat. And they had they had a lead. And uh, then all of a sudden that had to set up that game. And uh, that was the thing, Uh, the pressure they uh, they put themselves under. And the fact that once they started the game, once they got the game going and the Astros were were scoring and Necro was dealing, uh, that took a lot of the pressure off, obviously. But uh, the main thing is, I remember the circumstance they got themselves into to have to play that game in the first place.
2: Were you at that game?
1: Oh, no, no, I was not. Not at the, I was still living and working in San in 1980. No, 1980. I was still in Buffalo. Okay. Okay. I didn't come to San Antonio. Well, I don't know. Maybe I was in San Antonio. The years run together
2: after a while, I think for all of us, but let me, let me tell you what I remember about that game. and, And it isn't so much the game itself. I missed most of it because I was in college, you know, when that was going on and I had a test that day and I absolutely flunked the test. And you know what, I, I would have normally cared about that, except when I got out of uh, class, I was done for the day, and I was listening to the game on the way home, and I put it on, and the Astros were, like, well ahead. I want to say it was in the sixth or seventh inning. So the fact that the Astros won, you know, I wasn't too upset about flunking the test because, you know, if I would passed it, they might have lost. So <laughs> that's, that's what I remember about that game, aside from the fact that, obviously, they were finally going to get to the postseason. I'd waited. You know, I'd been following the team, I think, for 10 years at that point. And finally they got there, at least at that particular moment, a great day in Astro's history.
1: Yes, it was. It certainly was. And uh, it was the beginning of uh, a series of years that were uh, at least they were often competitive from that point on. And they really have been. They've had some individual years, obviously, that have been bad. But as far as the big picture, this franchise uh, has been uh, a competitive franchise for most of them, other than the little teardown stretch between ownership here and, and recently and 10 years ago. And then the, uh, uh, the stretch, uh, well, actually every time there's a ownership change, there's a little bit of a drop back, uh, you know, as they get the finances in shape and don't spend any money for a while and uh, that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, this, this was, that was really the beginning.
0: And you know, who pitched a, a big one in, in that one was, uh, Joe Negro, big, big game for him, uh, basically shut down the Dodgers and, one thing that I was reading about, Greg, and, and I don't know if you recall any of this, and I, and I just didn't know this because I, I, I don't, I don't I was maybe 10 years old at the time when when that season was going on or nine years old. Uh, Joe Morgan just was a real leader and, and sort of inspired the guys in the middle of the season. You know, he said, you know, we're not playing like we should be playing and, and we're not playing team baseball. And he sort of took over the leadership of that team. And, and one thing that I, I, I guess I wasn't aware of was from what i read bill verdon wasn't happy about joe morgan becoming the leader of the team instead of bill verdon being the leader of the team was was verdon thought well of in, when it was all said and done greg do you remember much about how bill verdon was was thought of as a manager with the astros
1: uh he was old school and so consequently uh someone else is coming in and trying to uh make suggestions and strong suggestions, of course, would have worked against him. But, yeah, he was well thought of. He, uh, You know, how well thought of he was when when Durker came in as manager, who did he want as his bench coach? I mean, right away. He wanted Bill Verdon. He wanted a guy that was uh, a student of the game, not a fire-up type guy. And, of course, that Morgan was. And Morgan, of course, had all that experience since Red's Big Red Machine. So, uh, his skills had, were no longer at the level that he was at that point when he was with the Reds, but he, he certainly brought a lot of persona from being on that team and being a leader of that team and that may have been a that may have been a conflict too.
0: Let's move from the Astros, Greg, and I'm just curious either Steven or Greg, either one of you did did did, did you guys watch the New Look Rockets last night? Yeah, I watched a little bit of it. I think Greg, you were watching the Red Sox Yankees. You got caught up in that one, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I I did. I watched. I switched over, so I saw parts of it.
0: Yeah, it was fun. It was great fun, Greg, and, and Steven. I mean, the uh, Rockets are just uh they've got a, lo- a lot of athletes, a lot of guys that, you know, you just enjoy watching, but l- let me just say, Steven, uh, you, you if you caught, you know, some of this, it, it was just uh funny because the defense, the free throw shooting, the 3 point shooting all the things that you would worry about from a young team that that's what the issue was when they they played last night but I I tell you, I mean, you got to be excited about all these guys because they were making explosive plays, making fun moves. You know, if they ever figure out this defense, and I don't know how long it's going to take them to figure it out, they're going to be good. And and I think they're going to be good faster than a lot of people around the NBA think.
2: Well, I think they're going to be exciting to watch. And they certainly were, Robert. I think that, you know, what, what really struck me was not only energy and the intensity, you know, for a preseason game, but. Did did you hear the attendance figures for a Rockets preseason game? I believe there were 11,495 fans there. Now, I know, you know, COVID has a lot to do with, you know, a lot of fans haven't been able to come to games and so forth. But that's pretty darn good for a Rockets preseason game. So, you know, we're not the only ones excited about this team. And what was interesting also for me was it, it seemed like the second-level guys were actually making the three-pointers and making the shots. I know Josh Christopher kind of heated up in the fourth quarter. That – I, I kind of tuned in bits and pieces. I think part of the fourth quarter is what I caught most. But, you know, they're, they're going to be fits and starts, obviously, because these this is such a young team, and they're all trying to mesh together. But it just, you know, if, if they can just play with some energy and intensity, the wins will come. They just need to put it all together. And
0: as you said, if the defense can get better, that will make a big difference. Yeah, to what you said, um, the major rotation players were 8 for 26 from 3. But Garuba... Josh Christopher, who like he he was incredible in the fourth quarter and led him to the comeback win. And Armani Brooks, Augustine, they were all together six for 10 from three. So they shot really well. And it's funny, Greg, with the three point shot being the most important shot in the modern NBA. Why is Armani Brooks the 15th guy on the Rockets roster for a team that can't shoot? You know? It's one of the things as I was watching the game. I'm like, hey, maybe we should play Armani Brooks because that guy—he's like a—he's going to be a 50% three-point shooter, I think. When it's all said and done,
1: I think you got a good point. I think it's going to be a little difficult to cut the team down and also come up with the rotation in the traditional sense—you know, eight, eight, nine players. Because I think actually they—they they may have more guys that aren't that much separated from each other. They—they they were exciting to watch. I thought from what the parts that I watched. Uh, obviously, uh, they don't uh, play the greatest team defense yet, but they really get after it and they hustle. And uh, that can be learned. The problem will be when they run into the really established teams in the league that uh, will figure out ways to pick them apart, and then their their only hope to uh, compete is to score with them. They'll be able to do some of that because they've got some great talent that, that runs hard And, again, with the youth, they aren't going to tire quite maybe as much. And with the depth, they may have guys they can play. Again, this was just the first uh, preseason game, and Washington is not expected to be one of the powerhouses. But uh, the fact is uh, anything's going to be an improvement over last year, and it will be a a look toward uh, getting better and better with the raw talent that they'll be working with. I think it will be interesting to see what they do with some guys that are on the roster like uh, I – I think Eric Gordon has to be uh, traded. I mean, I think uh, he doesn't fit long-term with this young group, and the young group seems pretty deep. And there will be some veteran teams that would like a guy like Eric Gordon. So we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah, Eric Gordon's interesting because, yeah, he, he just didn't look like he had a place among these guys. And there are 16 guys that they've got signed none of which to two-way contracts. So, you know, they've got some guys beyond that that are signed to, to two ways, but 16 guys. So somebody's got to go. I, I don't know if the John Wall thing gets solved before the start of the season, but somebody like Daniel House or DJ Augustine, maybe somebody looks at their roster, another team looks at their roster and says, hey, we could use one of those guys because frankly, it, it just feels like you're wasting your time. If you're, you know, Steven, if if you're putting out DJ Augustine and giving him some sort of major minutes with this roster... Uh, why Daniel House? Why? I mean, I, I want to see these young guys, and and frankly, Daniel House, he just makes a lot of dumb shots that I don't want my young guys seeing. Oh, that's the kind of shot you take a st- a step back three when you're basically a role player in the NBA. Yeah, there's there's so much
2: inconsistency with you know with especially with Daniel House that that's been my most critical point. I mean, he there are some games he'll come in and go, wow, this guy maybe he's finally starting to show you know what he's really made of and then he just makes some bonehead plays or just doesn't play well at all so yeah i i don't think you've seen the last of the rockets making moves whether it's before the season starts or certainly by the trade deadline i think you know most if not all of these guys that we were just talking about they could be headed out the door sooner rather than later
1: they may not fit with this young club but they do fit with uh, more veteran-experienced clubs in the NBA, and I think clubs in the NBA that set up for the free three. This team doesn't set up for the three like the Rocket teams of the past. It's kind of a, an afterthought. Uh, and uh, so consequently, he fit in with that well, the old Rockets. Uh, but he didn't, which uh, don't knock the old Rockets. They had some really, really good teams, 60-game 60 team, 60 winning team once and all that sort of stuff. But the fact is this team is not set up that way. Uh, it is not set up to look for the three-point shot first like, uh, like it did. And so uh, guys like Gordon and Augustine and guys who have been around and have smarts and know the little tricks of playing the game, they have value to uh, teams that have more veterans on them, and I think that the Rockets can actually get some stuff for them.
0: Greg, my guess is you were not the biggest fan of watching James Harden go one on five. This team's not going to have that. They're going to be moving the ball around. There's not going to be one guy in particular as good as Jalen Green is and as high as everybody is on Porter, you know, between Porter and Wood and Green and some of the other young guys. It just seems like the way the offense is set up and the way Stephen Silas has set it up it's not gonna be the Mike D'Antoni, give the ball to James Harden and everybody else get out of the way. I think you you like that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean I I'm not discounting how great Harden was i'm just saying that this team is not built that way and it probably doesn't have a player they could build that way anyway but the fact is after the game i did listen to the coach commenting a little bit and he 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 was troubled in the second quarter he said in the second quarter we did too much one-on-one and uh, so there is that factor when you've got guys with great basketball skills that they can get into one-on-one a little bit more it's not the same as Harden because hardens one-on-one was as much as anything to shoot the three but if not, then drive to the basket, everybody get out of the way. Now, his skill was so good, he could pull that off uh, more often than not, And but it still is not it would, it's not what this team should should do because this team, I think, they actually have dribbling and and passing and, and skills of that nature. Then those rocket teams did. They had Harden and they had some other guys that would had specialties. You know, Eric Gordon, uh, specialty for the most of his career, three pointer. But then later, last year, of course, he did a lot of driving. But as long as they stay away from the uh, too much one on one, the stuff that takes a few seconds to do, then you're doing, then it's too long. Then you're then you shouldn't be doing it. If it's not a direct move to the basket, pass it out. You've got other teammates. And they did that for most of the game, second quarter, little week. Uh, but uh, they. Uh, and then when they scrambled back at the end after being behind by a significant number of points and had a great finish, that was your bench guys that did that. That's the guys you're talking about, the Christophers and so on and so forth. So there's depth on that uh, that roster, and it may be difficult. Uh, it'll it'll take a little time to figure out who does what when.
0: Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing about this whole team. And, and also – We got to mention the fact that Raphael Stone, while all this was going on, just a little under the radar move that maybe everybody missed last night. He makes a trade with the Nets. Uh, The Nets get rid of a player that was causing them some salary issues. And in return, the Rockets waived the guy, but they got a second round pick just for taking him off the Nets hands. Uh, Stephen, you gotta love what Raphael Stone. He just keeps making good. I can't believe he's this good this quickly. Yeah, don't
2: you think he should be? Uh, you think Nick Casario should be talking to him <laughs> about how to make a draft picks? Because I, I tell you what, you, you can't argue with, you know, because he's making that's a high second round pick. Well, the Nets. you know, of course I know there's there are more draft rounds in the NFL than NBA, obviously. But I guess what what you're saying though is from a strategy standpoint. Yeah, maybe Nick Casario could take some lessons from him.
1: Well, I'm going to step back. I'm going to I'm going to do my senior old guy stuff here and step back and say, don't get terribly excited. Be be enthused, but the bottom line is going to be wins. The bottom line is going to be over the long haul. I think there's some talent, and uh, the general manager has acquired what looks like some talent, but this talent work into a team and that uh, that only takes time to, to find out. And so we'll, we'll see. So that's, that's my uh, old man controversy <laughs> over getting well, too excited yet after an exhibition game win, but I thought it was an impressive exhibition game win.
0: Yeah. And it's a second round. I should remind people it's a second round pick unprotected nets 2024. Right. So unless there's some sort of disaster between now and then, I, I mean, it's going to be a low second round pick maybe in, in the NBA, that's still, Nice to have, but it's not like a second round pick in the NFL, Stephen. Let's, let's remind you. No, certainly you that. not. No, and I did make that point. It's you know that obviously there are more draft rounds, so. <laughs> yeah. So, but I tell you what, I, I, I will watch all that I can of the Rockets this season, and I'm I can't. Like I said, I just can't be more excited about watching these young guys. Shane Goon, I just I, I already have a huge love affair with him too. Uh, Greg. You, you always come on with us whenever we ask, and, you know, you, you don't have to do this, and it's just always fun to catch up with you and get your take on it. And your take's always different than our take, so we love hearing from you and, and getting a different, you know, sort of angle on everything.
1: Well, I appreciate it. I, I try to be informed and experienced, basically, with my stuff and sometimes come out of the the left field because, obviously, everyone is assuming, you know, the Correa thing, everybody's assuming he's gone, and I'm just uh, – I don't know. I, I, I still think the, the Astro if he is gone then the Astros are making a very serious mistake regardless of what the cost would be. Because you just don't get players that can play shortstop on both sides of the ball as good as he is with his age only being twenty seven. That that to me is the most important part of this whole thing. You don't let guys go when they're going into the peak of their career. And uh I just have a feeling that Jim Crane's going to do everything he can for that not to happen. And I don't think the fact that they, pub- and, and the, the Astros traditionally have not, you know, doesn't a whole lot of stuff leaks out of there like it does out of teams in New York and L.A. And uh, not much leaking. Odds are against him being back only because of the fact that you're, you're talking about maybe six teams or five teams would be interested against one, but I think that uh, the importance of him staying, I, I know the Astros uh, management knows how important it would be, his leadership as well as his batting average and his home runs and his fielding. Uh, and I just don't think you should automatically give up. And, and even on his manner, uh, you know, his his wife's from Texas. Uh, she's, uh, you know, and if you make a whole lot of money here, uh, that's worth a lot more money than some other places he could go. So I, I just think, I think they're not dead yet.
0: Well, you made a lot of Astros fans excited when you say that. And yeah. and, and I can't thank you again enough, Greg, uh, before we go, Stephen and I, we're going to have the Astros game one post game show tomorrow night. We've got to remind you of that. So, you know, you, you want to look out for that, look out for our post game shows. If you're feeling the Astros and want to make a wager on this series, Don't forget to use our sponsor, BetUS.com, America's favorite sports book. The promo code HST125 to redeem 125% sign-up bonus on your initial $100 deposit. If you forget, look for the promo code in the show description to help our podcast. Sign up using either the BetUS link on our pinned Twitter post at the top of our page or go to our website, HoustonSportsDoc.net. Click on BetUS. It's all over that homepage. Actually, all over any page on our website. Until next time, everybody. Uh, Let your friends on social media know which Houston SportsCast you'd recommend. We'll talk to you later.
1: You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
0: Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.